This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. He is genuinely one of the most original and brilliant and moving keyboard players that has ever operated within rock and roll. Noted author Barney Hoskins in his 1993 book, Across the Great Divide. Following the last waltz, Garth Hudson didn't have much issue continue doing what he loved, play music. The industry and musicians were intrigued by Hudson. The quiet figure hunched behind a mountain of keys was always deemed the magic touch the member that helped push the band into a territory of its own, and everyone wanted a little of that magic on their record. Hudson had also expanded his studio prowess from his days of recording Bob Dylan and the Hawks in the basement of Big Pink. He had had a heavy hand on the band's successful comeback album, Northern Lights, Southern Cross, and he was uniquely positioned to be the perfect session artist between his technical skill, in the studio of course, and his unique style of playing keys and other instruments. He also enjoyed the style of living and working this way. He noted in 2002, you get out there in your 74 blue Volvo with a short turning radius and do sessions and occasional film work. And this is Garth's way of speaking to the easygoing life of a working musician in the late 70s and early 80s that he enjoyed so much. One of the first projects Hudson did as a session player post-band was Blondie Chaplin's self-titled album released in 1977. The South African player had been with the Beach Boys for a period during the 70s and had recently worked with Rick Denko on his first solo offering for Arista Records. David Geffen had signed Chaplin to Asylum Records and he went into the studio with Rob Fabroni to record his first solo effort. Chaplin and Fabroni decided to bring in Hudson for the track Riverboat Queen. Riverboat Queen features Hudson on his accordion. The mid-tempo rocker isn't anything particular or spectacular, featuring a steady backbeat from Ricky Fatar of the Beach Boys. Hudson is given an accordion solo that provides the swamp rock stylings that Chaplin was after.
and the five-minute number, along with the rest of the album, was released without much fanfare. And it would be several years before Chaplin attempted another solo album. But more interestingly, coming from her fresh appearance at The Last Waltz and taking the music industry by storm, Emmylou Harris was back in the studio working on her fifth album with her longtime husband, Brian Ahern. The pair had been recording at the Nactron truck, a trailer that was converted into a recording studio. The Canadian-born Ahern had just made a successful record with Anne Murray and awoke one evening at his Toronto home in 1971 from a dream of building a mobile recording studio, liberating him from the constraints of the traditional recording setup. And after several years of developing the studio on wheels, he towed it down to Coldwater Canyon, not far from Laurel Canyon in California, where history was made in the unit. Emmylou recorded much of her 70s output there, alongside acts like Billy Joe Shaver, Jesse Winchester, Willie Nelson, Jimmy Buffett, and even some of the last waltz was handled at the truck. Back to Harris's fifth album, she called in Garth Hudson and Rick Danko to provide their talents to a few tracks. Garth plays accordion, and Rick contributes fiddle and backing vocals to Leaving Louisiana in the Broad Daylight. The track is a pure country banger about a girl named Mary who runs off with a traveling man, her irate father following close behind. It's also got that southern funk that the band does so well on their own tracks. Danko's unorthodox fiddling provides the perfect country bumpkin vibe and his high and clear vocal harmony is wonderful here. Garth is on accordion, bringing the track into a more country folk territory akin to the band's Evangeline. Hudson also plays baritone on another track called Burn That Candle, the last track on the album. A mid-tempo country rocker about a man asking his woman to keep the candle burning even when he's gone. Burn 
Hudson provides a brief sax solo, which pivots into the legendary guitarist James Burton's guitar solo. The album, entitled Quarter Moon in a Ten Cent Town, was released January 6, 1978, and reached number three on the Billboard charts. Ingraining himself more in Los Angeles, Hudson, who was quite private, ended up meeting the love of his life. Maud Marie Kegel, born September 28, 1950, in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, met Garth in California, a place that she had called home and grown up in for much of her life. Maud, who had somewhat of a mysterious background herself, established a career as an actress and a robust singer. She had also happened to have a daughter from a previous relationship. It's not a surprise that Maude and Garth connected deeply because of their joint love of music between Hudson's musicianship and Maude's pipes that she would lend to acts like Paul Butterfield, Cindy Lauper, and Hearth Martinez. In short order, they were engaged and married. Now, Garth also found himself, continuing with his session work, back with his old acquaintance Van Morrison in the spring of 78, Morrison found himself putting together his 10th studio album after several prior successes. He wanted to try his hand at something more pop rock, featuring more electric guitars and synthesizers. He originally set up shop for several months at Manor in Oxfordshire, England, to compose and record many of the songs on the album. But he later moved across the pond to the United States, completing work on the album at Shangri-La Studios. He later said his goal with the album was to bring together all of the musical phases of his life to date, assembling a band of players to reflect that, Herbie Armstrong from his show band Days in Belfast, Peter Bardens from his previous band Them, and Garth Hudson, who had had a friendship with him, and the band from their time living and working together in Woodstock, New York. One of the first tracks Hudson worked on was Kingdom Hall, a song taking the audience back to Morrison's youth in Belfast. Attending services with his mother, a member of the Jehovah's Witness, Hudson provides keys on the track. Kingdom Hall is pure Van Morrison. It's bombastic, it's raw, it's really energetic with shades of his earlier work like Domino and Jackie Wilson said, and it also kind of feels like a Bruce Springsteen number. Ironic as Springsteen has noted Morrison as an influence on his career. The track also features a mind-bending synth solo that has Garth's paw prints all over it.
The next track that Garth worked on was called Venice, USA. Garth is present on the accordion. There is also an assortment of keys on the track. The song is about love. It's breezy and almost polka-like in parts. Lester Bangs was clearly pleased, maybe, with the album and tracks. Noting of Garth Hudson, the great Guga Muga Garth Hudson sitting in on various instruments. Well, take me back to Orpheus descending, he said emphatically. The track features lush moments of synth and accordion in a solo from Hudson. The last track Hudson worked on happened to be the last track on the album, Take It Where You Can Find It. It juxtaposes earlier work, a nearly nine-minute closer, but this one features a much more laid-back cadence, a song about lost dreams and found dreams. It features a big arrangement with acoustic guitars, choir vocals, and a beautiful synth part from Hudson. The album was released September 1978 and was entitled Wavelength. At that point, it was Morrison's best-selling album to date. Melody Maker reviewed the album as evidence of Morrison's drift into the American dream.
There were also a few other projects that Garth worked on, including accordion on Tony O'Kay's track, How Come I Can't See You in My Mirror, for his album Life in the Food Chain, released by Epic and produced by Rob Fabroni, and a project with Australian rockers The Dingoes. The album was entitled Five Times the Sun. Hudson played keys on one track and supposedly assisted with producing the record. As writer Peter Dyer suggests, quote, the band had a profound effect on Australian rock music in the 70s. The Dingoes were one of the top bands of the early 70s and were strongly influenced by their music. And lastly, Hudson was involved with Hearth Martinez' second album for Warner Brothers, Big Bright Street, a record that was produced by band producer John Simon and featured band friends like Dr. John and Michael DeTemple. Hudson guests on the album lending accordion to the record. Now, with this considerable amount of session work that was happening for Hudson and the work that he was finishing up with the band, it offered him the opportunity to establish himself in California further. Thus, over a few years, he built his new home, Big Oak Base and Dude Ranch, a sprawling space between Malibu and Agora. The space was more than just a stead for Hudson and his new wife. The ranch also included a state-of-the-art studio. The plan was to tinker, work on his music, and potentially bring in other musicians and bands to record. That dream came burning down in October 1978, not long after placing Roots. A massive firestorm swept through the area. Started by an arsonist, it later burned down 25,000 acres of land. As the fires spread through the canyons of Santa Monica Mountains over the next four days, a total of 230 homes were destroyed. At least 254 other structures were also destroyed in the fires, and the fire was contained on October 25th and controlled by October 27th. And in that period of time, 136 engine companies, 28 camp crews, 8 bulldozers, 6 helicopters, and 6 fixed-wing air tankers helped fight the fire. Understandably devastated that his hard work had been destroyed, it wouldn't be the first nor the last time that Garth Hudson dealt with challenges on such a large scale. But one thing remained unchanged. He was still one of the most in-demand players in Los Angeles. Working with more legends was on the near horizon, and even before the ash settled on his once oasis, he began composing his first opus. Garth Hudson wouldn't be kept down. Thank you for listening to The Band of History. Really hope you enjoyed that episode. You might be wondering why the episodes are a little bit shorter, and I guess I'd tell you why. It's been no surprise that it's hard for me to put out episodes. Uh, it's been roughly one a month for the better part of, I think, three going on 40 years at this point. Um, and the goal was not to be that uh, slow with releasing the episodes, but that's just the nature of what's happened. Uh, I'm trying to do shorter episodes and bring out two a month. So uh, this will be the second episode. Instead of 40 minutes, 45 minutes each, you're looking at 20, 25 minutes each. Um, let me know what you think of this. I'm just trying to get the content out faster. And uh, at this point too in the band's history, when they start separating off and doing their own things, it's easier to vignette these different stories, right? Garth here doing session work in, in 77, 78 area and, you know, Rick, the last episode, 
So let me know what you think about this. We're going to continue on. Uh, we're going to get back to Levon next episode. Um, hinted at that at the tail end of his episode on the RCO All-Stars uh, touring and some of the stuff that he dealt with. Uh, so it should be, it should be a good uh, few episodes coming up. If you're interested in kind of joining the conversation and uh, finding us online, we're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at The Band Podcast. Come over there and check it out and send me a tweet or a message or whatever. Uh, you can also support the show monetarily at patreon.com slash thebandofhistory. There's different tiers. You get early access to the episodes. You get bonus content, uh, extra content, and you help support the show. I want to give a special shout out to all of the Patreons that are contributing at this point. There's like 20 of you. Thank you all for that. Uh, it really helps kind of move the dial, get a few things that we need out of the way to make the podcast uh, and upwards and onwards. Hopefully we get some more supporters soon so we can make this thing even bigger. I also want to give a special shout out to my editor, friend Mike, who edits the show. Keeps me honest, makes me sound good. Thanks, Mike, for uh, helping with the show. It's been really appreciated and is the reason why we're getting these episodes out with a more regular cadence. Otherwise, uh, that was that was this episode. Really hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I love talking about Garth, uh, his private life that he keeps very private. It's very hard sometimes to research uh, these eras and these guys, but uh, it's it's a fun challenge, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. So we'll catch you on the next one. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts 
or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.